the AWS for Software Companies podcast, episode 24, Generative AI Disruption, Impact, and Opportunities for Software Companies, featuring Matt Bell of Anthropic, Siddhartha Agarwal of Freshworks, Glenn Nethercutt of Genesis, Jeremiah Stone of SnapLogic, and Andy Perkins of AWS, moderated by Sherry Marcus of AWS. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS for Software Companies podcast, where we speak to software leaders around the world about their journeys to the cloud, overcoming obstacles, and the role that Amazon Web Services play in their success. Today, we share a fascinating panel discussion from the AWS for Software Companies Executive Forum at reInvent November 2023, featuring software leaders from Anthropic, Freshworks, Genesis, SnapLogic, and AWS, discussing the disruption, impact, and opportunities of generative AI for software companies. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to have this esteemed industry panel discuss generative AI. So let's get started. What does the generative AI landscape look like a year into the hype, specifically for software companies? So Anthropic has been thinking about generative AI for a good long while. Uh, we got started in 2020 and we're focused on building powerful yet steerable and interpretable large language models. Um, the scaling laws paper that came out in, in 2020 actually predicted what the, the world we find ourselves in today. Uh, it's kind of similar to Moore's law that basically we saw that if you put in more compute and more data, you would get more intelligence out with, with the model. What we have been amazed by is the speed of adoption that we've seen, not just from smaller enterprises, but from some of the world's largest enterprises. We've seen a level of innovation and experimentation that we find very heartening. Um, we've seen a wide range of use cases. I'd say they fall into three major areas. Uh, one is around cost centers. Um, anything that involved processing large amounts of data that, that previously took a human to do, a good fraction of those tasks can now be done by AI. Additionally, a lot of dialogue interactions that previously required a human uh, can be done with AI. Separately, we've seen AI supercharge a wide variety of software, particularly productivity tools. And so adding an additional layer of intelligence on top of those tools unlocks tremendous value given the fire hose of information that, that we're seeing. Finally, we've seen entirely new categories of products get created. Tools, for, ex for example, for generating an entire legal brief or legal memo from a set of background data. And those are all use cases that are running in the field right now. So overall, we've been particularly impressed. So I took this question more in the context of, you know, who we as product leaders, you know, how the Gen AI landscape has affected us. And there are two things that it has done for us. One, it has completely reprioritized the product roadmap. And two, it has actually leveled the playing field. So it didn't matter if you were a lot ahead of others or behind others, it's kind of leveled the playing field. And so from a product roadmap lens, you know, we have 65,000 customers. We think of ourselves as providing software for the Fortune 5 million as opposed to Fortune 500. 
And our real role is to democratize AI for this huge customer base, all the way from SMB to enterprise. And what it did for us was it made us think a lot more about how do we change our roadmap to be able to deliver their needs for self-service, uh, to enhance how self-service could be done so the customer agents have less work that goes to them. It made us think about how do we reprioritize our roadmap for you know, the agents themselves in terms of what are some always-on assistants that are working uh, alongside them and providing guidance to them. And then more importantly for business leaders, how we can provide more insights, but proactively using Gen AI on an ongoing basis. Yeah, so as, as a technologist, I guess it's an exciting time to be alive. I guess that's the first thing I would say. Uh, a year into the hype, I don't think the hype is dying down and for good reason. Um, at Genesis, we've, we've sort of had the benefit of being involved in AI research for about two decades, um, maybe a bit more if you count some of the speech recognition we've done way back. So it was an incredible market validation point, I think, for us to watch how much AI started to resonate uh, in ways that maybe traditional businesses, whether it's financial services or healthcare or retail, even manufacturing, right? They were all embracing technology and cloud, but it's been really interesting watching their adoption of at least the concept of AI. Uh, in some cases, I think some areas are still finding it as a solution in search of a problem. Maybe many of you in the audience here also have mandates from your boards to say you need to be using generative AI and you're not really sure what the problem is gonna be yet. Uh, there are many uh, that I have found in that particular area. But the amount of adoption that it's gotten, the value that we're already seeing, uh, again, we have a glut of the type of data that works incredibly well, to your point. Much like Freshworks, we have uh, huge amounts of customer service information that we can mine and use to drive a better experience, more personalized experiences. And I think that's where it starts. It starts with personalization in the hype curve, but suddenly you start finding other places either for your development teams to benefit from it or, or maybe ways to, to build that into product differently. It's been a great year. Agreed. No, I mean, I, I think it is a wonderful time to be alive, particularly if you've been you know, searching for decades on how to give people better experiences and, and how to help, you know, just decrease the time from knowing what you want to accomplish and getting it done. I think generative AI in particular allows us to create conversational uh, interfaces and the, the interactive design with conversational interfaces, I'd say, is really immature. Uh, and, we're, and we're seeing that. But the fact that you can now get there and, you know, like you know, most of the folks on the panel here have been working, you know, decade plus on trying to make these types of interfaces work and dealing with trees and dealing with other ways of doing it and having to be just so kludgy to go in a year to have something that's actually vibrant and, and interactive, I think has been amazing. I think for software companies in particular, though, a, a year might as well have been a day because, you know, what does the architecture look like? How do you manage it? How do you think about the legal dimensions of it? How do you think about, you know, managing your customers' data, et cetera? I think it's still um, quite challenging. And, you know, there are some of us that as software companies just left off and figured we'd knit our parachute on the way down. And I think we've done a, a pretty good job doing that. Um, but I'd say it's still very early days, both in the interaction design for how we're going to work with these tools, as well as how we're going to manage them in the broader fabric, you know, both legal and, and business-wise, everything from business models to legal architecture for how we have to serve our customers. So very early days from my perspective. Well, uh, plus one to everything this panel has already said, I think. But uh, just to sort of call out a few interesting trends that I think, some of which I think we could have seen around the corner and probably anticipated, and some that 
frankly, are a bit surprising, but the, the real sort of focus on data as an asset, data as a differentiating component, that companies are sitting on this trove of data that they can turn into useful information through a variety of means. And obviously that, that paradigm existed before this sort of latest year of generative AI, as it were, but the extension or the, the acceleration of that, uh, that principle has really been significant. Um, I think we've been a little surprised uh, somewhat by the presence of, you know, our customers have come to us with rather great frequency saying, we wanna make sure that we can run on a secure uh, platform, run our Gen AI workloads. And so to the extent that obviously that's something AWS takes very seriously and always has, it's been in our DNA since uh, day one, it is job zero to be secure and, and, and ensure compliance. But I think we were a little bit thrown by just the frequency with which chief legal officers were, were joining some of the initial discussions and so on. So those are some interesting um, sort of um, elements. And I think it sort of speaks to what we were talking about earlier, which is that oftentimes Gen AI is even a board level mandate. Um, and so because of that, there's a, there's a focus not just on actual risk, but also on trust and confidence and how customers uh, you know, or, or ISVs um, can help support our end user customers or ultimately we can uh, collaborate with them to really make sure that they have the, um, the governance structure in place to, to do what they need to do. So Matt, how do you think AI will disrupt industries? So it's always exciting to speculate on, on the, the near future, but looking at the continuance of present trends like in a certain way, large language models are democratizing in that everyone gets access to this uh, very powerful intelligence. Um, however, what we've noticed is that enterprises that figure out how to leverage their proprietary data sets effectively, the sort of data that they've spent many years and many millions of dollars gathering, will be able to produce better results from AI than, the, than the, the companies that don't. And so in the near future, we think we're gonna see successes that are driven largely by not just rapid adoption of AI, but successful leveraging of existing data. Now thinking a little further out, I'd like to make an analogy to the analog to digital office transition. So I was not in an office in 1970. In fact, I didn't exist. But my impression is that Offices communicated largely through paper and memos and very laborious copying and sharing of information. Now, fast forward to, to today, the digital office has made the cost of communication and coordination and replication of information incredibly cheap. What we expect to see over the next five years is that intelligence will become incredibly cheap. So things that used to be particularly laborious forms of knowledge work may end up becoming incredibly inexpensive over the next few years. And companies that are able to realize the implications of that are going to do very well. Um, a couple of things that, that come up of note. Number one, I think Dunbar's number is a human limitation. It's a limitation to how many people we can keep in memory at any given time. I expect that with AI at the heart of every organization over the next few years, Dunbar's number will essentially go away as a coordination ceiling. Another thing that we may expect to see in the near term is that every employee becomes a mini CEO where they have a staff of specialized AI agents that can perform a wide range of 
domain-specific tasks for them. And the employees that are able to very quickly understand what is possible with that collection of agents will do very well. And the companies that adopt software that enable that use of agents will do very well. Sherry, if I can add something to that. I would, yes, please. Yeah, so, you know, if we think about retail, you know, retailers don't have bot designers who know how to figure out what are the questions that customers are going to ask and how do you design bot flows that can automate responses for those retailers. And you think about all the Shopify merchants and the AWS, Amazon merchants that are out there. So one of the things that we think is going to disrupt things is that uh, leveraging all the data that we have across all the customer support conversations that have happened across our 65,000 customers, we'd actually able to go in and figure out for retail, what are all the questions that are being asked? If you think about it, what do you care about? You want to know if your order's been shipped, you want to do some returns, what's the status of a return, you want to deal with some warranty issues, et cetera. So I think that what generative AI is helping us do is actually telling our customers that, hey, these are the common questions. We'll actually create the bots. We'll deploy the bots, customized to your account or customized to your company and its products. And that will take care of all, that'll deliver a much better experience for your customers and a cost of agent-based care is gonna go down. So that's how you know, retail being a very thin margin business is going to become successful potentially because the margin cost equation goes down because of leverage Gen AI and the data that we have within our repository. We, we see the same thing happening across other verticals, uh, financial, healthcare, telecommunications, all of them have very different sort of ontologies that they need to speak. So I do think there is some amount of either model fine tuning or in some cases, smaller models than you may first enter with on the FM side. Uh, I think that's an interesting trend to watch the, the vacillation between just larger parameter count and more specific focused models with lower latency. We were just talking about that backstage. Um, so I think that's, that's a tenuous balance to keep striking, but we see exactly the same thing happening across many, many verticals. I'm, I'm assuming you do as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think what, what we see though is that, you know, back to the question, how do we think, you know, this will be disruptive? I think um, that what we see is that companies who have already made a strong commitment to managing their data in a careful and thoughtful way are able to put it to work. Um, you know, all of the ideas we have here about individual autonomous agents or being able to pull all the questions and answers for a specific industry are predicated on the idea that you could actually build a, you know, chunked data store of that type of information in order to, you know, do a lookup um, based on a similarity search on the question. The reality is a large portion of industries have not managed their data responsibly and in that manner. Um, they're basically many, many were sort of in the late adoption curve with the shift to the cloud in the first place. And so you see this incredible fragmentation with legacy systems that maybe haven't been touched other than technical upgrades for decades. You've got, you're living under technology decisions for the last 30 years or so. And so I think what we're going to see is, is companies that are willing, able, and focused on understanding what the data prerequisites are to achieve these awesome outcomes will be successful. Um, and then we're going to have a lot of waste and flame out um, where people think that it's a insert technology and you'll clean up all of your, you know, data brownfield um, that you, you have there. And it, it's, it's a significant problem. And, and the other thing we see is that, at least from my perspective, it's almost like a, you know, what Generative AI does allows you to almost do what lean manufacturing uh, did in the manufacturing world is that you can go after waste. Because what you're basically talking about is automating non-value-adding activities. 
So if you've ever worked with a lean you know, expert in a manufacturing sense, looking at all of those places where it's non-value-adding activity, whereas waste, are you able to get rid of that? Have you managed your data in a way that you can strip that waste out? I think it's, it's incredibly enticing of, of the value that could be there, but also high risk, because often those high waste areas are places that have a lot of regulatory risk around them. You know, back to manufacturing, what about your you know, user manuals for high-value goods? You know, if you can generate them trivially, the cost is zero, but they're wrong, you know, then the cost is not zero, right? So the tail risk of doing this stuff is, is also you know, sort of almost inversely proportional to the effort you put into it. So you know, I think, A, yes, if you've made a good investment in managing your data, you're going to be able to get a lot of value. Um, and, and B, understanding where the risk moves and where the cost moves if you're taking things that used to be laborious and non-value adding and now you're automating them, are you now creating tail risk that you didn't have previously? Yeah. Jeremiah, since you raised the question of risk, um, I'd just like the other panelists to riff off of what you said. So what risks um, does, do you see uh, as a concern for the use of generative AI within your uh, businesses? Yeah, so there's there's a number of use cases that we found immediately uh, easy to gravitate towards Gen AI. Things like summarization, for example, were pretty straightforward to, to know that that was the right star to hitch that wagon to. Uh, but the reality is there's not a lot of risk in that, right? When you're doing an extractive type of an AI process, it's actually not all that encumbered with risk. Um, we do find places for us, large amounts of routing strategies, for example. You can imagine that if we're picking and choosing based on AI, who an agent in Europe is that's getting particular types of healthcare calls and they're incentivized for it, suddenly their salary at the end of the year could actually be driven or dictated a bit by the choices their AI is making. So it's often several hops away from what you normally think. Uh, of course, we worry about things like bias and, and drift. Uh, we've, we've invested quite a bit on toxicity analysis too. We've got a few papers that we, we published. Um, highly encourage everyone to also be part of the movement of AI and actually publish back. Um, but we found that things like sentiment analysis, other forms and flavors of AI, turned out to be a great way to curate the data sets that you were just talking about. It's a pretty straightforward way to understand which things should we drop out. So just building an ethics program like that early, I guess is, is the shortest answer I would give. Um, if security is job zero, then ethics is probably job number one right behind it for, for AI. I think for us, uh, you know, security obviously is number one job because we have so many customers in a multi-tenant environment. But two key aspects come through in terms of you know, what we're concerned about with generative AI. One is around uh, accuracy, and the uh, second is around privacy of the data. So for accuracy, we focused in a lot on, you know, for example, making our generative AI available in supervisory mode meaning the agent can actually decide whether he wants to publish that, or he or she wants to publish that response or not. Two, we're working on using retrieval augmented generation so that we can have the LLM understand the intent. When we feed that intent to a search you know, paradigm, the search is able to go across the corpus of data that is specific to that customer or specific to that domain. It comes back with relatively accurate results or accurate results, and then we're able to feed those results back into the, the, the uh, LLM so it can generate a summarized version that is accurate. So I think you know, that accuracy is one key focus for us. And the second thing is how do we eliminate PII data? Because for example, when we have a real-time ETL pipeline, 
data is coming into us both in terms of how people are using our software and the data that's being put inside into the software based on you know customers entering their information or agents entering their information and there for us in the etl pipeline itself we're making sure that we can identify the entities that are uh, there in the data as the data is coming in we're using amazon comprehend to be able to then say what's the pii portion of that data and then be able to redact that pii data uh, so that now we have data that is anonymized to some extent. So when we say we can go across 65,000 customers and we'll crush Freshworks models, we're able to give customers the confidence that this is not data that is using any private data, either of their customers or theirs, for other folks. Uh, and the last thing is we're making sure that when we're uh, setting up relationships with cloud providers, in this case, for example, AWS, we make sure that we have stringent security policies such that our data and our customers' data cannot be used to train any of their LLMs. That is only meant for us. The LLMs that get trained or the, the, the fine-tuning that's done, that's only for our use. Building on that a little bit, um, at Anthropic, we, we think about adopting an LLM into your organization as a little bit like hiring an employee. Basically, you are making this entity responsible for important tasks in your organization. And just as you would want a human employee to behave well and follow the rules that you set out, you, you similarly have an expectation of the LLM. A lot of the, the risks that we um, hear about have already been, been covered by you all. To add a couple of points, accuracy, I think, is one that a lot of customers think about in detail. Um, there's a range of techniques that you can use to mac maximize the accuracy of the, of the model. So RAG is one, of course. There are also self-reflection and other prompting techniques that you can use to get the model to be particularly careful and to check its work. Um, one other risk area that comes up uh, is jailbreaks. Um, so if you don't know, jailbreaks are basically users behaving badly, trying to get the model to do something that it's not supposed to do. And a lot of these jailbreaks are harmless, but some of them can cause serious issues. And to that end, we've done a range of techniques, including constitutional AI, in order to minimize the rate of jailbreaks or the rate of successful jailbreaks on Claude. And a recent study that showed um, many other models getting jailbroken about half the time, Claude's jailbreak rate was about 2%. This is something customers care a lot about, and so we focused particularly on making sure the model is robust to them. Great points. Andy. Well, I won't necessarily call it a risk, but it's a bit of an unknown. Um, we talked a little bit, um, I think it was Glenn who, said, who mentioned that, you know, some of the Gen AI workloads are actually moving into production, and some ultimately don't quite make it there. This, for whatever reason, they just, they just don't pass the, uh, the ROI, et cetera, et cetera. But we're getting into this realm now where we're going to need to better define which generative AI features are worth paying a premium for, and which generative AI features are um, not necessarily loss leaders, but are, are expected to be part of products. 
We're not quite there yet, but as we sort of look at the, the evolution of the market, there will be an interesting opportunity for us to sort of quantify what the value proposition is for these uh, different, different solutions. Certainly within the internal, you know, there's also the component of how you can save costs, as, as we talked about earlier as well. That's, a, that's another sort of parallel factor here. If you can automate and reduce the number of human uh, events and so on and so forth, you're going to naturally lower your human capital costs. So you also have to look at that equal arm balance in the equation. But I think we're, my expectation, again, you know, not that I have a crystal ball or anything like that, but I would imagine over the coming months and years here, we're going to see a lot more of a, you know, a scrutiny on what's the right charge point or what's the right price point for different features and so on and so forth. And that is an unknown. 100%. Sure. If, if I could add one thing. Oh, I, yeah. I, I do think that for me, the, the biggest risk that concerns me is this unsupported ladder of inference. <laughs> no pun intended, that many people are making in terms of what these tools can and cannot do. And, you know, these are peers, you know, to us in the audience, and they're looking at different investments, et cetera. Um, I think the biggest risk is we don't ground ourselves in the science, in the history of the development of these things. What, what were language models really good at? Well, they're good at translation. They're good at taking, you know, text or information you have and creating text or information you want. Right, subject to the ability to ground it in what you want. And that's where we focus a lot, for example, is describing the integration or automation that you want in plain language and then generating the structured domain-specific um, you know, integration pipelines in, in our case. That's good. Abstractive and ex extractive summarization, awesome. Very good at that as well. Um, creating documentation, those sorts of things. I think where when we become untethered from the last 30 or 40 years of research, because under, underneath all of this, you're dealing with lots of you know, matrix multiplication and you know, calculus, et cetera. When you become untethered from what that's good at and where the science has taken it, I think that's a big risk from a capital perspective. If you're deploying that capital and you're hiring a bunch of people to do things that fundamentally are detached from what you know, we've seen the science of this be good at. Um, and it's also a reputational risk perspective etc. Because if you start to, you know, have a token generator doing something that it's not necessarily good at or doesn't have the science to support it, you're going to end up with, with bad results. And I'd say that's not the toolmaker's fault. It's the tool user's fault to not understand the domains for which uh, these things are good at. Perhaps a provocative idea, but understand the magic you're playing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm all in favor. <laughs> yeah. Matt, did you want to uh, yes, this, this touches on a bit of advice that, that we give everyone who's adopting large language models for the first time. Um, first, it makes sense to build up in-house expertise, whether that is your in-house ML team or, say, a prompt engineer and LLM ops people that you hire. You want to have that expertise in-house so you can really understand what these models are and aren't capable of. And then separately... Uh, we advocate test-driven development, where essentially, if you are looking to adopt large language models into a particular task, you will want to benchmark for yourself what success looks like. Gather a large number of example inputs and outputs, and really hold yourself to that standard. And if the model is not capable of doing that use case yet, hold off on it. There's a range of other use cases it will be capable of. But we found that the companies that are meticulous and also flexible tend to do the best when adopting large language models. We're, we're finding a really big spectrum, too, on our adoption curve. Like, the idea of being able to pull an FM quickly and experiment 
to pull that into a use case that we know might not actually meet the right ROI, right? The value of doing that on a turn-by-turn -turn basis, maybe latency characteristics are not quite right for it, but it lets this experimentation arc happen much, much earlier, I think, than it otherwise could. There's also a long tail of languages that likely customized models you might never actually want to chase, and FMs, I think, are particularly good at being able to have transferable knowledge across language domains, at least that seems to be the, the case in the research today. So I guess that's, that's another part of it. Just because you're picking an FM and starting a job with a large language model doesn't mean you're stuck in large language model land. There's a, a whole host of other types of models, I think, that work in concert with them. I don't think predictive AI and predictive analytics are dead by any means. Yeah, and, and I and I think that you know, Matt gave some great advice, uh, and I'm sure we could get a lot of advice from you all. But there are two things that I wish people had told us a lot earlier than what we did to figure it out. One is how our supply chain of building software is going to change. Because now when you think about product managers, product managers can actually build prototypes by themselves and do not need engineering. Because they can describe what they want, they can describe the UX, and actually have the UX created. And they can use input from that to actually create the PRDs to refine the PRDs and make the PRDs that much better. So their engineering dependency goes down. But also the engineering organizations change because now they can look at, well, I have technical debt that I have to draw down. Well, can I use refactoring? Can I use LLMs? Can I use code generation to be able to generate and draw down the technical debt even faster? Or I need to build 100 connectors to connect into my ecosystem. How do I build 100 connectors? Well, now with code gen, you can actually have integrations built for you by just conversationally asking for integrations, for example, from a Shopify catalog to Freshdesk or something. So we actually set a goal in place to build 100 adapters in 100 days. And a product manager did it just one adapter in half a day to say if it's even possible. It was. We only got to 70. We didn't get to 100. But that's one thing, you know, really trying to think about the capacity of your team and what PMs can do versus what engineering can do and how that can get refactored would be something that, you know, has been really useful for us to learn about. Great point. On that topic, Andy, so how do you see SaaS companies work with Gen AI and what are you excited about? Oh, geez, what am I excited about? Um, well, look, we, we touched on some of the use cases already yes. and some of them, while you know, not that difficult, he says in air quotes here, because all of this was revolutionary 10 years ago, but you know, the ability to do translation, things of that sort, that's becoming table stakes, but at the same time, it is a very valuable uh, component within, within the applications in the SaaS applications we're seeing today. And that could be English to Spanish, and it could be Spanish to a computer-generated language. I mean, literally, the complexity of what we're able to do now is fascinating. And so it opens up a whole host of doors of opportunity. Um, I think, though, that if I was just sort of see what, what's happening today, it's really the, the UX or the user experience and how Gen AI is making it so much easier for users to, to gather information, to, to uh, do work. Um, and we're able to sort of um, take a step away from engineering and help enable business analysts and other line of business type of sponsors uh, take, take a response or take, a, take a, what typically would have been more of an IT-based role. So as software companies are able to sort of generate uh, faster productivity and enable different personas to uh, derive better value out of the data that they store and that they house, um, I think it's just, it's just the beginning of a paradigm shift. And I'm personally one of those folks who'd say on the S-curve of technology development, we're on the very bottom here of, on that S-curve. So um, lots of opportunity to come, and it's fascinating to see those who are leaning in quickly on these technologies, um, continuing to experiment, 
um, but also st starting to see some, some real value and some real uh, opportunity to, uh, to improve margins um, by having these differentiating features. Has anyone else uh, seen examples? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, um, I almost would turn the question a little bit on the side. What I'm most excited about is the X as a service companies that are using generative AI in their businesses right now. Um, we were fortunate enough to um, announce a partnership with one of the world's leading uh, language translation service providers, Aqualad. Um, and Aqualad works with you know, a network of over 20,000 uh, human uh, translation professionals, linguists, and they're incorporating generative AI into their workflow to be able to deliver assets you know, you know, close to in one six hundredth of the time. And the type of assets I'm talking about are, imagine, you know, for your product, you have a high fidelity video with a voiceover in different languages. Being able to deliver that to your target markets increases your marketability, allows you to go to market more quickly. And so that translation as a service, I think, is really interesting. Language-based value is around us everywhere. And watching those companies that, that trade, whether that's marketing copy, um, whether that is, um, you know, information in the support area that we've talked about. I think, you know, people that provide those services, this is an opportunity for them to disrupt their own industries. And for us as software as a service companies to figure out how we're going to embed within that revolution, because I think that's going to be the big shift and change. It isn't so much what we necessarily as technology enabling companies do, but you know, what happens when, you know, you have the world's leading healthcare companies delivering, you know, patient outcomes completely differently because of their ability to manage, you know, generative instruction for a specific patient in a specific context. Like that's cool. That's exciting. And that's what I'm really thrilled about. Glenn, what about you? What are you excited about? Well, if I'm wearing my, my product hat for a second, I guess uh, I, I'm certainly thrilled to see how much we can change the experiences that our customers curate on a daily mm -hmm. basis. Uh, years ago, uh, we, we made the change to what we now call our platform is experience as a service. If you go way back in time, contact centers, call centers, worried about calls. Then we started talking about omni-channel and the digital revolution, so we we're all worried about conversations and interactions. And then we started talking about journeys, and now we're really talking about experiences. And I think AI, generative AI in particular, is a lot closer to that being as part of the language domain that it makes, I think, the, the impedance mismatch between that tool for curating some of the data and some of those experiences is a lot lower than the types of blunt instruments that we've had before. So the product part of me loves that. Um, the, the pure technologist in me, uh, for one, I, I certainly love the code gen ideas and maybe what a new generation of developers are going to be able to do. And I love how democratized that part is, Matt, to your, to your point. The fact that there's not an incredibly high-walled garden that's really only allowing the largest of the large software companies to leverage this technology is a watershed event. I'm not sure if uh, some have, have called this the same thing as like the internet, right, in, in scope and scale. I think that's fairly accurate if, if we run that, that wave the right way. Creating is one thing. The maintaining, the, the go talk to that product manager in a year after they have to maintain <laughs> their 70 uh, integrations they created is going to be a challenge. Yep. Yeah. And this is where LLM ops becomes particularly important. You need to be able to account for distributional shifts, monitor performance, upgrade all of these systems as more powerful or more efficient models become available. And so there is very much an investment in the continued maintenance of this AI workforce, essentially. Matt, on that point, um, how do you see Claude's availability on Amazon make it easy for businesses to integrate 
transformative AI? Um, we have seen a lot of customers who are incredibly happy that they're able to make calls to Claude from within their, um, within their AWS environment. So customers who are ready, for example, have a VPC set up for security reasons, are able to use Amazon Bedrock to directly access Claude. That way the data is not going over the wider internet, and it's also using all of the safe, secure, and scalable tools that AWS has available. So the, the partnership has been wonderful in terms of unlocking the power of Claude for a wide range of AWS customers. As a, as a consumer of it, I can plus one that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, Bedrock was very quickly part of our core strategy, and we've got kind of three pillars. One where we're still investing in proprietary models, somewhere we're taking open source, and third are large foundational models like, like Claude. Um, and the idea of being able to pull that through Bedrock, we're in more than 20 countries, 20 regions of AWS around the world. We're in highly regulated markets in a lot of those areas, everything from HIPAA and ENS and high trust, even FedRAMP moderate here in, in the United States, for example. And the idea of being able to get that through the same platform that we're already delivering the innovation, and we can let our FM partners focus on that big job and not on infrastructure and compliance and regulatory was a pretty big win. Like That was a big accelerator for us in the choice. Well, and it's also the combination, not just the, the technology that you get with Anthropic on Bedrock is great, but when you combine that with the support that you get with your, from your AWS account team, access to solution engineers, access to um, people that have, you know, the... You know, the, the customer passion is not just a slogan. We definitely feel it. And we're working simultaneously with, you know, um, the, the team at Azure OpenAI, the team at, at Google with the Cody models. And, you know, for us, I think the big difference with you know, Claude on, on Bedrock has been just the enthusiasm, passion, and availability that the AWS team brings. When we bring those two together, that definitely can help you unlock velocity, um, I think. You know, we're, we like all of our partners, but um, I have to say it has been definitely a, a different experience between the Anthropic and the AWS team. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, one thing that we were particularly excited by at the beginning of the partnership is that we messaged our solutions architect contact over at AWS and said, hey, would you like to do a training session? And uh, I think about 10 days later, we ran 300 solutions architects through a training session and also did an advanced training session in person with about 60 solutions architects. So the fact that everyone on the AWS solutions org has leaned into very quickly scaling up on large language models, particularly Claude, has been great. So I know we've talked about the state of AI today, but what practical advice would you give for software company executives just going into Gen AI? Well, I think, uh, you know, what I would say is, you know, uh, we think of it in waves. So wave one, wave two, wave three. Uh, wave one is where you look at Gen AI as an enabler. You take the capabilities that you have and you just throw Gen AI at it. It might not be as differentiated, but things like, you know, tone enhancement, rephrasing, or being able to summarize. Um, these are things that everyone can do, or be able to use multi-languages to be able to support your customers in multiple languages, even though the rep does not know. That's just about using it as an enabler. Why not? The second one is, how do you rethink the automation that someone, you know, can, uh, uh, that you can deliver for your customers? So, for example, marketers, when they're looking at building marketing campaigns, uh, we said, now you, don't, you just need to give us a KPI. We'll figure out which products are best to run that campaign against. We'll identify the segments of customers that you should run the campaign against. 
we'll help you build out the campaign look and feel because we can generate that, we can tweak it through conversational engagement, and then we'll actually decide what is the right time that is the best time to send these, this campaign out to the different people. So you're effectively making it a mass campaign, but a campaign of one. So that is some work that a marketer would spend days and days doing, and now he or she can get it done within less than an hour. And so the wave two is really rethinking what are the use cases that I can completely automate a complete rethink. And wave three, which could be a little scary, is how do you scrap your product roadmap and start from scratch? So that's the part that you know, we're thinking about what does it mean you know, to scrap the current product roadmap and think completely from scratch. I think to do that, you know, if, if you haven't um, incorporated investigating generative AI into your product, into your team's data, what you said previously, Siddharth, I think is exactly right, which is take your teams and give them access to the playgrounds. Um, so if you can get into the playground and you start to play around with the prompt engineering, it, what most people don't realize is there's sort of this hierarchy of complexity and access. It starts with prompt engineering, which is very similar to the experience that we've all had, you know, in, say, ChatGPT or BARD or any of the other you know, consumer um, Gen AI experiences. Very similar in the enterprise, except you get more control in terms of how you can manage, you know, how creative the model's going to be or how long it's going to generate. But put engineering, product, user experience, documentation, give them access to the playgrounds and then say what is the thing that our customers have been frustrated about and can you help that be you know less friction you know easier access to you know simple things like documentation lookup in context with the work you're trying to do maybe just starting there is a good place but the, the single most important thing that I see people not doing is giving the people that want to solve problems for their customers access to the playgrounds in the first place to be able to rapidly prototype without writing a single line of code standing up a machine image or doing any of that don't put infrastructure in front of creativity and experimentation. I would definitely well suggest yeah. putting, putting a, a co-resident pipeline uh, running parallel to that track on the LLM ops side of that equation. Um, I'll, I'll say the less uh, exciting answer of the trust and ethics thing again. I think building those programs is key. By the time your innovation teams have figured out what they think the right problem to solve is, where the ROI is, and the wherewithal to actually execute on that with the technology that's available, you already need to be ready with what your trust and ethics story is going to be. Um, Sid, your point about uh, actually alighting the data before it even goes into model training, uh, exactly the same arc that we went through, uh, but we use NER BERT, not LLMs, for example, to pull that out much more cheaply, and the giant swath of data is now clean. We actually use generative AI to create synthetic data from that cleansed data, right? So not totally synthetic, but larger tranches of synthetic data that we've built from that. And then we can build a pretty, pretty clean model, devoid of bias and devoid of a lot of risk for our customers. Um, you're not going to find that late stage in the game, right? I think you need to be developing that sort of muscle memory about how to deploy AI at scale while you're figuring out which problems you're going to solve with it. So last question is for Andy. Uh, how can software companies partner with AWS account managers on generative AI POCs? Sure. So um, I'm going to go back to a question you asked earlier to answer this one. Um, what am I most excited about? What are we most excited about? What we're really excited about at AWS is the opportunity to partner with 
software companies like the ones on this panel here, like all of you in this room, and we're solving some of the most significant challenges, not just faced by software companies, but by our civilization broadly. I mean, we're talking about helping accelerate the pace of uh, RNA, uh, CRISPR uh, RNA analysis. As you can tell, I do not have my PhD in molecular and cell biology. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, th this concept that we're solving some really big problems, and those problems typically tie back to customer outcomes. So if the, the tried and true way to align more closely with AWS uh, and, and to go to market, and by the way, thank you all for the kind things you've said about the partnership. Feelings are completely mutual in every respect, but it's about solving these customer outcomes. It's about engaging early with one another and going to our customers, or our end customers, our customer's customer, and talking to them about the business outcomes they're looking to accomplish, what they need to do to differentiate in their markets, and then working back together from that. And if we come together at that exact discovery phase and we start moving from there, we're gonna be incredibly successful, not just delivering on our customer outcomes, but delighting them. And that's the charter we look to replicate across all the technologies we take to market with AWS. But the simple truth is we cannot do this without you. The software companies in this room today are foundational, no pun intended, to where we're going as a company in this space. We, we, it's not going to just be an AWS product. It's going to be AWS products coupled with, our, with our, the, the products of our, of our partners to collectively offer the best tools in the market today. Please be cognizant of that. And then when you come and work with our teams, focus on the customer. We'll focus on the customer together and we'll delight them together. Thank you, Andy. And thank you everyone for participating in today's panel. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to the AWS for Software Companies podcast. For more conversations with global software leaders, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please feel free to share these episodes on LinkedIn or other social media. Thanks again for listening.